Let us rejoice, people of the Lord. Let us sing. 
doubt we know the Lord is worthy of honor. And we must not be afraid to tell Him so. Deep within our hearts there beats an overpowering need to lift Him up, to give our love until it overflows in our account as it shows. So let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. Let us see. Song and voice be a worthy offering. Let us fill this place with worship, lifting praises to our King. Let us rejoice, people of the Lord. Let us sing. Oh, let us rejoice. Let us sing. And let us sing. Let our song and voice be a worthy offering. With worship, lifting praises to our King. Let us rejoice, people of the Lord. Let us sing, let us sing. began with a question. Why is Thanksgiving important? Is it really important? Is it a vital Christian virtue? Or is Thanksgiving just a nice thing to have, just being nice in life? Well, I want to make the proposition to you today that Thanksgiving is absolutely basic and thanksgiving is essential to Christian character. To the degree that you are thankful, that is one very valid measurement of Christian virtue and Christian character in your life. And to the degree that we are ungrateful and take things for granted, it's a sign of our carnality, our worldliness, our lack of true Christian spirituality. In your Bible today, the book of Psalms, number 100, Psalm 100 in the Scripture. If you would turn there with me, please, and we will stand in a moment and read it together as, as is our custom here at the Baptist Temple, Psalm 100. And uh, while you're finding it, let me tell you a little bit about it. When the pilgrims were sailing across the ocean there, and when they came near to the North American coast up off Massachusetts. And they spotted the land for the very first time. There low on the horizon, barely perceptible, was what would become the United States. And as they looked there and saw it, the word went through the ship and people were all standing up on the edge and on board there looking across the water to the, to the new world. And one of the leaders there, William Brewster, asked them to call them to attention. 
And he opened his Bible, and he read Psalm 100. An interesting little side note to uh, Thanksgiving, that the moment they spotted the new world, they stopped and they read the Scripture, and they read this wonderful Thanksgiving psalm. Would you please stand with me? And we'll read it. And it doesn't have a lot of strange words or anything. Even the children can read with me here today. Why don't we all read it aloud, good and loud and strong together from the very first word. Okay, let's read. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and unto His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endureth to all generations." I particularly want you to focus on verse 4. Enter into his gates. This was written to the Jewish people, and when they heard that phrase, they understood it to mean you enter into the gates of the tabernacle or the temple. So when you come to church, the attitude we ought to come to church with is enter into the gates of the church. When you hit the parking lot out here, then Gratitude should be an attitude that you have already cultivated in your heart. And then into his courts, there again, a reference to the tabernacle, the temple, his courts with praise. Be thankful. It says it again. You enter with thanksgiving, and then as you're here and throughout your life, be thankful unto him and bless his name. And why should we be thankful? For the Lord is good. Do I hear an amen to that? The Lord is good. And you may be seated today, and thank you. I think it's really important as a minister of the gospel of Christ for me to remind you what Thanksgiving is about every year, because I think gratitude and thanksgiving are virtues that are in short supply in the world that I live in today. I have seen a diminishing of a spirit of thanksgiving and gratitude in my own life, and I'm sure you have too if, if you live for a while. Let me give you the background here of thanksgiving. The Church of England had become very, very corrupt in the 16th century, so corrupt that people were losing faith and confidence in the church itself. And there were two groups of people in the Church of England that wanted to do something about it and bring the church back to the Bible and correct it and get it back to a pure Christianity. One of the groups was called the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims' idea was that we stay in the church. We not give up on the church and leave the church. We stay here and fight for the church's purity. And the second group were called the pilgrims. And the attitude of the pilgrims was, no, the church is irredeemable at this point. 
we are not going to stay here because it's impacting the lives of our children and our families, and we are going to be corrupted by it. Therefore, we will leave the church. We're going to pull out, and we're going to worship God in a different direction. And so they did. And the pilgrims, several hundred of them, went to Holland. They lived there in Leiden in Holland. And there they had the religious freedom to serve God and worship the Lord the way they wanted to do. However, there were other problems there. They talked about how that their children were being assimilated into the culture of Holland, and they were losing uh, their children. They wrote, our children are becoming, they used the term, quote, worldly, meaning they were becoming like the culture. And by the way, side note, oh, that the parents of the Florence Baptist Temple would be concerned about their children becoming worldly. Oh, that our families, and especially dads I'm speaking to, oh, that you would care when you see the trend and the drift and the tendency in the lives of your children to be assimilated into this culture because this culture is killing us. This culture is hurting everybody in this culture. And God forbid that our children would be immersed in the culture and so much like it that we, they would not be recognizable as Christians any longer. So the pilgrims left and went to Holland. But after about 15 years, they said, our children are becoming too much like the world around them. And Holland was a very worldly culture, far more cosmopolitan, far more sophisticated, far more worldly in its thinking and secular than England was at that time. And so they moved back to England, if you can imagine. But there they found persecution, and they were severely persecuted for their religious beliefs. And through a set of circumstances, they were giving given a land grant in the New World. Somewhere around the mouth of the Hudson River, it gave the, uh, the specific dimensions for the land grant on the charter that they had. And so in the summer of 1620, a little over 100 of them, 102, I think, set sail in a rickety little boat called the Mayflower, they were crowded in there because another ship that was going to go with them had uh, problems and begun to spring a leak, and the mast broke, and so they ended up, on, all of them on one ship, too many people. And then they encountered storms out in the North Atlantic, and very stormy, rough weather that they sailed in most of the journey. It took them 10 weeks. Imagine cooked up in a little boat, not much larger than our choir loft, with 102 people, and out there on the water for two and a half months. And the storms blew them north. Their goal was to land at the Hudson River, the mouth of the Hudson River. Well, by the time they got there, they'd been blown north about 250, 300 miles, and they finally touched the land after 10 weeks on the north shore of what is today uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It's been a long time. 
400 years almost have passed now since those brave, stalwart Christian people landed in the United States. What's important about it is we end up talking about the feast and all that, and well, we might, but I want you to get the significance of why they came here. They came here because of one reason and one reason only. They came to have religious liberty, religious freedom, to serve God both in the church and outside the church the way they wanted to serve God. That was the driving force, and that was all. They didn't come for economic opportunity. People did later on, but not them. Would you move 3,000 miles in a rickety boat that risked your life, crowded into it with 100 other people, not knowing for sure that you'd even make it? Would you do that so that you could have religious freedom and to keep your children from being assimilated into the world? That was the motivation for Thanksgiving, for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving Day feast. And so they arrived here looking for freedom of religion. I can't overemphasize that. Castro died on Friday. No, nobody ever deserved to go to hell more than Fidel Castro. And it grieves me when I hear our leaders talking about the reforms under him. I happened to know some Cubans who were there. And you know the first thing that Fidel Castro did when the revolution took force? He shut down the churches. And he put the Christians in jail by the tens of thousands. And while the diplomats and politically correct people right now are extolling the values and virtues of Fidel Castro. The Cubans who lived under it down in Miami are having a parade and having a celebration like they never had. They celebrate his death because he was an enemy of religious freedom. Don't ever forget that. Don't believe anything the mainstream media tells you anymore, folks. They're all about making him a hero. Go home and watch it today. He was not a hero. Next to Hitler, he was one of the wickedest men of our generation, of our times. And so religious freedom brought those people to this world. The left today, if you'll listen to the news carefully, the left doesn't talk about religious freedom. The left talks about the freedom to worship. Don't buy that. Freedom to worship means we have freedom to come here and worship God the way we want and keep our religion within the walls of our church. But don't go to the mall like these fine young people did the other night and get out there and start talking to, about, to the public about Jesus. Freedom to worship is not freedom to practice your faith. You see the difference? We believe in religious liberty, the freedom to practice our faith as the Lord leads us. Well, on the ship, they had also signed something called the Mayflower Compact. The, a compact or a covenant, if you will, an agreement, a contract with each other. Here's what the Mayflower Compact says. Having undertaken for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to plant the first colony in the new world, 
we solemnly in the presence of God and one another covenant together into a civil body politic. What is a civil body politic? We don't use that kind of words today, do we? Well, the significance of it, of the Mayflower Compact was that here is a written framework like a constitution, a written document which for the very first time sets up a government in America that guarantees freedom. And they, and they had three agreements in the Mayflower Compact. One, that they would choose their own leaders, that they would vote, and the, group of pe- the people themselves would choose their leadership. Secondly, that the, the leaders then would make the laws for the whole. And that thirdly, everybody agreed to live under the law. In other words, that the law would rule rather than people ruling what we call today the rule of law in our country. And at least theoretically, it's still supposed to be true here. And so this compact was the first document ever in history, in the history of this nation, that guaranteed civil liberty and the right of the people to choose their rulers and then to live under the laws that were made. Listen to the words of William Bradford as they sailed into port that night on the shore of New England. Quote, though it was very dark and rained sore, yet in the end they got under the lee of a small island today called Clark's Island. And they remained there all that night in safety. And this being the last day of the week, Saturday, they prepared there to keep the Sabbath. On Monday, they sounded the harbor and found it adequate for the ship. And then they sailed up the harbor and marched into the land. They had no idea how difficult it was going to be. Over half of the pilgrims died that first winter. In fact, one of them wrote, we made seven times more graves than we did huts to live in. By this springtime, they had run out of food, and they were down to a ration of five kernels of food each day or each meal per adult. Can you imagine your rations being 15 kernels of corn for the entire day? So that was the, that's <clears throat> in brief the story of that journey. Finally, the summer came, and then the fall, and it was a very successful harvest. Now, <clears throat> now it's a year later, in November 1621, there's only 50 pilgrims left of the 102 that started. And so they got together for their first feast. They invited 90 Native Americans, and so 50 pilgrims and 90 Indians observed the very first Thanksgiving. It wasn't just about a worship service. It lasted for three days, and they they feasted for all of those three days. I mean, they ate like they had not been able to eat. And an interesting side note on it was the first time they sat down to the Thanksgiving meal, Bradford had ordered that they put five kernels of corn on each plate. He wanted them to remember 
what they had been through and to thank God now for those tables groaning with venison and turkey and all kinds of vegetables and all kinds of food that they had had in that bountiful harvest. And they played games. The games primarily involved three-legged races and chasing each other in various forms of competition and, and um, wrestling. The Indians were big. They loved to wrestle. The men would wrestle each other, of course. And then they would come together a number of times during those three days, and they gave thanks to God. In fact, Bradford wrote, we gave thanks to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made known to us in Jesus Christ. That's the first Thanksgiving. That's what it was like. And I think it important to tell that story almost every year to remind myself and to remind you and to remind our children and our teenagers who tend to take for granted the importance of Thanksgiving. And we've just turned it into football and pumpkin pie and turkey and gorging and shopping and Black Friday now. How far we have come from what was the first Thanksgiving day. But the, it was not a tradition at those, in those times. And so it was 166 years later when George Washington, the first president, issued the first Thanksgiving proclamation. The year was 1789. But even after beginning the custom formally under George Washington, Thanksgiving was only observed off and on until 1863, when in the middle of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national day, and I quote from the proclamation, a national day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens, quote. And he said it's to be celebrated on the last Thursday in November of each year. And so, our present custom every year of Thanksgiving. Now back to my question that I ask you to begin with. Why is Thanksgiving then so important? Let me tell you in just one phrase, and then we'll, I'll validate that and authenticate that from the Scripture. Here's why Thanksgiving is so important. Because Thanksgiving recognizes Almighty God as the source of all of our blessings in life. Let me say it again. Thanksgiving is important because it brings God into the picture. Thanksgiving is vitally important because it recognizes all blessings come from Almighty God. You see, gratitude is something that we have in our heart. You don't you can't look at people and tell who is grateful and who is not. Gratitude is a heart attitude. But thanksgiving is when we express that attitude. So if I'm grateful in my heart, I say something. I express that gratitude. If I have gratitude in my heart, I thank the Lord through prayer. I thank the Lord through singing these wonderful songs of praise that we sung together today that were so beautiful as I listened. We call somebody on the phone, and we thank them. 
We, we write someone a thank you note, as old-fashioned as that sounds. It is so much more meaningful than a text. It means something that somebody sat down and took the time and wrote out the expression of their gratitude in their heart and then licked the stamp and put it in the post office. Oh, it's incomparably more effective. Gratitude is the heart attitude, but thanksgiving is the expression of that attitude. And so we sing in our houses of worship the doxology, the glory to God is what that actually means. Praise God, say it with me, from whom all blessings flow, all blessings. So the things I enumerated in my prayer of health and life and material comforts, and our family, and our country, and the freedoms that we have. All, everything, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the Scripture says that in many different ways. And in the book of James, the first chapter, it talks about the Father above, who is a perfect Father. And every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, who never changes, no shadow of turning, always the God, the immutable God of eternity, the personal God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who created the heaven and the earth, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and everything good that we have on this earth comes down from Him. And thanksgiving acknowledges that. And if we don't have a day of thanksgiving, it's so easy then to begin to just fall into taking things for granted, is it not? And so Psalm 100 is of significance to us. Verse 4, enter into His gates with thanksgiving. When we pray, I believe that's teaching us the very first thing in our prayers ought to be to thank the Lord that you enter the gates of the Lord's presence with thanksgiving, and you come into His courts by praising Him. And I, I listen to children pray, and little kids pray like this. Dear Lord, I want you to give me, and they begin to tell the Lord what they want to give. In Jesus' name, amen. And then I listen to them when they're 35, and you know how they pray? Dear Lord, I want you to give me same list. Never did grow up in our praying. You'd think God was Santa Claus. That's not the way to pray. Lord, gimme, 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 gimme. How would you feel if every time your children came to me, all they did was gimme, gimme, gimme? Well, you'd say that's what they do. No, I didn't really mean that. But Thanksgiving, a spirit of gratitude so changes everything, doesn't it? My kids come up to me and say, Dad, I sure love you. You're the best dad. Man, you have been so good to me through the years. Thank you, Dad. I love you so much. And they put their arms around me. They don't even have to ask. I say, what do you want? They butter me up, right? 
You ever butter God up? You ever say, Lord, you've been so good to me. My, you've given me life and health. And I've got a wonderful, loving wife and children. And you've allowed me to pastor a wonderful church. And, Lord, you're so good to me. I can never tell. Man, I'm going to go to heaven. And for a thousand years, I'm just going to thank. The Lord says, Bill, what do you want? Here's the checkbook of heaven for you. Thanksgiving. The importance of Thanksgiving is it expresses the gratitude of my heart to God and then to other people as well. Do you know that ingratitude is one of the worst of all sins? I want you to open your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 1. And your Bible's well broken in, I think, to Romans, which we're going to get back to before too long. But in Romans, chapter 1, there is a very, very significant passage of Scripture there. Romans 1, and uh, let's go down to verse 21. Because that, let's go back up to verse 20, a verse we use often. The invisible things about God, the things you can't see, His love and power and wisdom and so on, are revealed through the creation that He has made here on the earth. And God says, so people are without excuse. Now look at 21. Because that when the world knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. And the first step away from God into paganism was what? Ingratitude. People forgot to worship and love and praise the God of creation. And so when they knew God, when they knew Him, they were ungrateful to Him. And they took a step from Him. And you know then the downward spiral that the rest of Romans describes there. Shakespeare said it like this, How sharper than a serpent's tooth is it to have a thankless child. In other words, to have a child who takes you for granted and doesn't thank you and appreciate you and, and, and is not grateful to you is like being bitten with a snake. It's a painful thing. It hurts. Well, what about our Heavenly Father? When he looks down on his children, do we show him the love and the gratitude that we ought to show him? I read this week, there are two classes of people in the world, those who take things for granted and those who take things with gratitude. Those who take things for granted and those who take things with gratitude. And the question is, which, class, which classification do we fit in here this morning? We live at a time when in our abundance and our blessing in America, we, have, we even now in, in secular sources, we are referred to as the entitlement culture. The entitlement culture. If there's anything in the world that works against gratitude, it's an attitude of entitlement. I deserve it. The world owes me something. People owe me something. My family owes me something. Others owe me something. It's a tragic, tragic turn of events. You know, I'm glad I was born and raised how and when that I, that I was. 
I'm thankful to the Lord for my heritage. And do you know what my dad used to tell me over and over and over, Bill? You get out there and you work harder than anybody else. The world doesn't owe you anything. The world doesn't owe you anything. You make your way, boy. I don't know if dad, I hope there are some dads around still talk to their sons like that. The world doesn't owe you anything. You get out there and you work hard and you study and you get your education. You make something of yourself. Don't you expect anything to be handed to you? Do you know the, the foundation of gratitude is the expectation of nothing? The very foundation of gratitude is the expectation of nothing. And nobody owes me anything. God gave me a mind. He gave me talents. He gave me energy. He gave me a will. He gave me opportunity. And I'm to use it. Nobody owes me a living. Nobody owes me anything, really. Now, there are some verses in the Bible that I want to examine for just a couple of minutes here. And I'd like for you to well, I think I have them on the screen, so I don't have to even have you turn. It'll save a moment. Ephesians chapter 5 in your Bible. The Bible teaches us to be thankful both in and for all things. Now, this is the tough part of this message. Wow. Because this is hard, believe me. Ephesians 5 and 20. Giving thanks always for how many things? All things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks for all things. Now I can go down then to the book of First Thessalonians and in uh, chapter number 5 and verse 18, it says give thanks in everything that this is the will of God for us. So give thanks for all things. Give thanks in all things. I can tell you about giving thanks. I can tell you how hard it is to give thanks for all things. In fact, let me tell you something. That's impossible. That's impossible to thank God for some things that occur in life. Lord, thank you for this cancer. Lord, thank you. I just lost my job. Lord, thank you. I mean, can you do that with any kind of integrity and sincerity and reality at all in your life? Well, I don't know that we're actually supposed to thank him for those things, but we're supposed to have that attitude of gratitude that even in the midst of the worst things in life, that we still thank the Lord. And I can tell you, those, things, those are impossible requests that God has made of us without a strong, strong faith in two or three things. First of all, you cannot thank God in everything and for everything unless you believe that God is a God of love, that He's always a God of love, that He's never acting to hurt you or anyone else, that His very nature is love. And secondly, you cannot have that kind of attitude in, in your trouble if you don't believe that God is a God of wisdom, that He knows so much more than you. He is absolutely omniscient. He knows everything. And so I have a tragic loss, and my heart is breaking. How do I still have a spirit of thanksgiving? Only if I understand 
that God knows the end from the beginning. God knows the future. And that when I get there, I will agree with the decision that he made, though I don't understand it right now. I have to have a strong faith in God's love, in his wisdom, and also in his power. That God is able to take the worst things in life and make them for good. I read an account of some English people who lived during World War II. And Hitler's blitzkrieg was coming over and dropping the bombs on the city of London every night. And the city was being turned into rubble and people were being killed and loved ones were hurt and people were in, the hospitals were crowded and you couldn't work your jobs. And it was a terrible time, a breakdown of society. And yet some of these people looked back and said, you know, we went through that. And yeah, we murmured and complained at times, and yet looking back, it was some of the best days of our life. They could see in the rearview mirror what they couldn't see through the windshield of life. And unless we have a strong faith in God's love and His wisdom, we'll never understand those things. There's a great, great verse back in the book of Job. Turn there. I want you to see it. You might want to mark it in your Bible. You know, Job was in the midst of his years. I don't know how old Job was. I'm going to guess 40 or maybe 50 years of age, right in prime of life. And um, Job was a wealthy man. In fact, he was the wealthiest man of his day. He was a Warren Buffett, Donald Trump billionaire of his day. And in one day, Job lost all of his possessions. Satan came against him and took his businesses, took his cattle, took everything that he had. And at the same time, his children had gotten together to celebrate their birthdays, and a, a cloud came and a tornado or a hurricane or some severe type of weather, and all, all of his children were killed. And you know what? Job accepted it. How could he accept that? And then Satan said to the Lord, well, if I touch his own body, I've taken his possessions and I've taken his kids, but I'm going to take his health. And he came after him and he completely lost his health. And he was almost dead. Now, you imagine that. You're, you're super wealthy you lose all your possessions, you lose your family, you lose your health, and you're stripped to absolutely nothing. What's going to be your attitude? Well, I can tell you most people are going to be very bitter at God. They're going to be very, very angry at God. But Job, oh, that's why they wrote a book about him. Chapter 1, verse 20. Well, it's verse 20. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Job arose and rent his mantle. That's what they did in grief. He shaved his head as sign of mourning. He fell down upon the ground. And he didn't say, God, I hate you. I'm bitter at you. Why, why, why did you do this? He worshiped God. And here's what he said. 
Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave. I give him the credit for everything I had. The Lord took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God foolishly. Never became bitter. Never became angry. He submitted himself to the wisdom, the love, the power of Almighty God. There are three things if you're going to have a, a thankful spirit in the midst of your trials that you've got to have. And I'll, I want you to get them real quickly with me. You may want to write them down. Three things you've got to understand or you will get bitter at the trials of life perhaps. <clears throat> Number one, you've got to remember always that God is good. God is good. God makes no mistakes. He's good all the time. And so we humbly submit ourselves to Him. Fight any tendency that you might have in your life to get bitter when trials come and you lose your spirit of thanksgiving with God. Number two, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What do we mean when we use that term? We talk about the United States as a sovereign nation. That means that nobody rules over us. And God's sovereignty means that God rules the universe. There's nobody over him. There's nobody to whom God can appeal or go to. God is in charge. He rules. And, that, and if I believe in the sovereignty of God, I don't believe that things are ever out of control. God is in control. I may not understand it. I may not see how it's working out. But the Bible tells me God rules in the kingdoms of men. He rules over all. William Wordsworth, the famous English poet, wrote it like this. He said, one adequate support for the calamities of this mortal life exists, and one only. An assured belief that the procession of our fate, however sad or disturbed, is ordered by a being of infinite benevolence and power, listen to this, whose everlasting purposes embrace all accidents, converting them to good. One adequate support for all the calamities of this mortal life exists. And what is it? I believe that there is a benevolent, infinite God whose everlasting purposes embrace all of our accidents and problems, and that He is in charge. God is sovereign. Don't let the experiences of this life make you think that it's changed the character of God. God never changes. God is good. God is holy. God is loving. God is righteous. And God is like that all the time. He never, ever makes a mistake. So God is good. God is sovereign. And the third thing is God has a plan. God has a plan. And he's working his plan out. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good, right? No, people misquote that every day. All things work together for good to who? To them that love God, to Christians, to those that are, have submitted their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God 
has a plan, and God is always working. He's working right now. He's working in your life right now. He's working in this church right now. He's working in America right now. God is always good. Don't question it. God is sovereign. He is ruling. Things are not out of control, and God has a plan, and you and I are a part of that plan. And when troubles come, instead of becoming bitter at God, I can have a thankful heart during the worst of times. You've all read and heard about General Patton. He was crusty, profane, hard-boiled. He was probably the most famous military man of our age and known for that crusty determination that he always exhibited. Looking back on his life, here's what Patton said. My soldiers were treated better than the other soldiers. I went to bat for them at the Pentagon, and I got them the best blankets and the best boots and the best equipment. I treated my men better than any other men and women were treated in the U.S. military. And he said, what thanks did I get for? He told how long he had led, 35 years or something. He said, one time a private wrote me a note. In all those years, those hundreds of thousands of soldiers, one man wrote me a note and said, thank you for the way you take care of the troops. One note, one thank you note in 35 years. The natural tendency is to not be grateful, to take for granted the good things. I wonder if our Heavenly Father got a thank you note from anybody here this week. He's taken pretty good care of his troops, hasn't he? Hasn't he taken real good care of us? And did we give him a thank you note and say, thank you, Lord? I have a heart full of gratitude because your best gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, you gave him to me. No matter how tough it gets down here, no matter what happens in this life, you have provided me a home in heaven to be with you through all the ages of eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.